good morning, church family. How are we doing? Good. Well, praise God. Uh, I'm honored, genuinely, to, to be here standing before you guys this morning, getting to share the word. Uh, good morning to all our kids and especially my Ross students. Where you at? Man, I know y'all got more energy than that. That was disappointing, but I, I hear you. I see y'all. Glad you guys are here too. Uh, I have the honor of closing out our journey through the gospel of Mark. And we've been in Mark since I've been on staff here, so that's exciting. Uh, we're going to be in a little bit of a longer passage today. We're going to be in Mark 15, starting in verse 42, and we're going to go through Mark 16, verse 8. And just a quick side note, some of you, as you open your Bibles, may notice that, uh, well, Mark, in my Bible, looks like it keeps going uh, from verses 9 through 20. But you might notice some brackets there. I just wanted to uh, quickly... Uh, explain why that's the case. Uh, Mark 16, 9 through 20 was not included in many of the earliest and most historically reliable manuscripts of the gospel of Mark, but it's included in our Bibles with brackets because there's a slight chance it could have been Mark's original ending, but it's likely not. But to give peace of mind, it's, it, it's not like, you know, there's uh, some things that contradict uh, the Bible in those verses. There's nothing that contradicts other gospel accounts in there. Uh, and it could have been added as a way of tidying up what many see as kind of a weird ending in verse 8 uh, that we're going to see here in a second. Well, last week, Pastor Mike brought an amazing word on the death of Jesus. Now, as we close the Gospel of Mark, I bet none of y'all can guess what we're going to be talking about. Anybody? Anyone want to guess? The resurrection. Shout out. I heard you, Julian. Uh, I recognize that voice. Um, so yeah, I think that we, as a church family, we know that we have one Sunday every year that's designated for celebrating the resurrection. It's Easter Sunday, right? And I think that's awesome, but what's more important for us to understand about the resurrection is that it's something that we're actually called to behold and live into the reality of every single day, and not just once a year. Jesus' resurrection was not just a one-time deal, but it was a way-making reality that enables anyone who puts their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior to one day experience full resurrection in eternity, but also to begin living a resurrected life in the here and now. Amen? All right. Y'all, some of y'all, I get it. Uh, we're going to be starting off actually in Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. We'll come back to Mark 15, 42 through 47. Verses are on the screen. It says this. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Will you guys pray with me this morning? Lord Jesus ask you right now to speak through your word. God, your word is truth. And so I pray, Lord, that this truth 
that is being spoken about today would not fall on deaf ears, but on fertile soil. The seed would, would find fertile soil in the hearts of many in here this morning, and that it would grow and bear much fruit in our lives. Lord, we love you, and we praise you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen, amen. Well, I've got a question for everybody in the room today. Have you ever heard something from someone that was hard to believe? Anybody? By a show of hands. I see a lot of parents nodding their heads, right? Like maybe you heard your kid come home from school one day, and they're recounting their day to you, and they're just like, man, they're, you're like, man, they're making up stuff right now. You know, like these details, nothing's adding up, but you just kind of go with it. You know, they got imagination. That's great. That's awesome. Uh, but on the flip side, kids, students, maybe you've heard your parents recount some things from their glory days. Like about some amazing athletic feat that they accomplished when they were your age, and you're looking at them now, and you're like, I mean, Pixar didn't happen, right? Like, I don't know. That's not really adding up. You say you broke your middle school track record. I've never seen you run a day in my life. So uh, the, I, I've had this moment actually before my own life, though, with my wife, Emma. Back in 2020, I was a youth pastor in California. It was right at the beginning of the lockdown, and uh, if you're a youth pastor at the beginning of the lockdown, you're trying to, hey, how are we going to keep these students engaged, you know? So I had this bright idea. I thought, like, what if we did a trick shot challenge uh, on our social media, and we had people, like our students, record videos of them doing a crazy trick shot. We'd repost it, like dude perfect-esque trick shots. So I came up with this idea. I thought it was a good idea. And naturally, I'm like, well, if I'm coming up with the idea, you know, I got to come in hot. You know, I got to set the tone. And so I began thinking, strategizing, what shot could I do to really like, man, set the tone for this trick shot challenge. So I had a brilliant idea. I went to my wife, Emma, to, to hear what she thought of the idea. And I told her, I was like, okay, Emma, here's, here, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get on my longboard. And I'm going to longboard horizontally across from where the goal is, well beyond the three-point line. And when I'm like in the middle as I'm rolling by, I'm going to do a sky hook shot. And she gave me one look. And husbands in the room, you know, your wives can communicate a lot to you in one look. And what she communicated to me with that look was, that's a bad idea. You're never going to make that shot. That was confirmed when after she gave me the look, she said, that's a bad idea. You're never going to make that shot. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I struck a deal with her. I'm, I needed somebody to record me, obviously. So I'm like, if I don't make the shot in 15 minutes, you can go back inside. I'll figure out something else, something easier. She's like, all right, so we go out there, and here's take one. Coastline students trick shot challenge. Let's do it. First try. First try, right, Emma? First try. First try. All right, all right, let's close in prayer. I'm just gonna. My wife was like, you're only including that because you wanna show off. I'm like, all right, so, so what? But it does tie into our message for today, I promise. If, you do, if you're having a hard time connecting the dots a little bit, well, you know, I think I can understand Emma's doubt, right? I, I mean, the idea sounded so improbable, sounded nearly impossible, and let me ask you, if I would have just told you, like I would have described the shot the way I described it earlier, and I said, and I made it, first try, boom. 
Some of y'all would be polite and be like, that's awesome, Jake. And then you'd be like, man, that guy is lying through his teeth. Right? But the video, the, the evidence is there for all to see. First try, sunk it. Uh, but when I think about that shot and how hard it was to believe, I think the same thing can be said when it comes to the resurrection. Right? The resurrection, can we be honest, is hard to believe. Like someone literally dying and then three days later rising from the dead? Screams of fiction to our modern ears. But also, as we read earlier, it was a shock to the people who were there to see it right in front of them. In fact, doubt in the resurrection has been a consistent theme since the news first broke that Jesus rose from the dead. In the early church, particularly in the church in Corinth, we see the apostle Paul have to address doubt in the resurrection. There are people spreading these these obviously logical thoughts like, man, resurrection is impossible. So the resurrection of Jesus, that's not real. And here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 20. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. From the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Here, Paul confirms something crucially important for us to understand. The entirety of the Christian faith hinges on the reality of the resurrection. The entirety of it. So let me ask you a question. Is the resurrection real to you? Is the resurrection real to you? Notice I'm not asking, is the resurrection powerful to you? I'm not asking, is the resurrection worth putting a little bit of faith in just in case it's real? I'm asking, is the resurrection real to you? The reason I'm asking this question is because I believe our passage for today begs this question. Think about it. If Jesus really did die and rise from the dead, then everything he said has to be true, authoritative, and listened to. If he rose from the dead, then rejection of Jesus is a rejection of reality. Whereas acceptance of him as Lord is to live into reality. But if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then this whole gathering is pointless and we're wasting our time. So if our whole faith hinges on the resurrection, we must, just as Paul did with the church in Corinth, we have to confront the natural doubt that comes with the resurrection. You know, there are doubts in the room right now. I have no doubt about that. See what I did there? Okay. Yeah, I'll be here all morning. Thank you, guys. Uh, first type of doubt I want to I wanna touch on is doubts of logic. These are more black and white, fact or fiction types of doubts. Some examples of doubts of logic are like, how can a man physically rise from the dead? How is that anatomically possible, biologically possible? Throw in whatever science topic you want, you know, like how is it possible? There's also a question like, is the Bible actually even historically reliable? Like, how can we trust the gospel's account? And then there's doubts of fear. These are doubts that are motivated or caused by some type of fear or apprehension. They can sound like, what if everything I put my faith in isn't real? Is following Jesus really worth laying my hopes, my dreams, and my life down? What will others think or do to me if I wholeheartedly follow Jesus? Doubts of logic often serve as barriers to believing the Christian faith, whereas doubts of fear often serve as barriers to living out the Christian faith. 
So whether you wrestle with doubts of logic, doubts of fear, or a mixture of both, I actually believe that Mark knew that doubt would inevitably surround Jesus' resurrection. And he had it in mind when writing his gospel. He gives extreme detail in these closing verses of his gospel, specifying names, locations, and a particular timeline surrounding Jesus' burial and resurrection for the primary purpose of providing as much evidence as possible to show that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I believe he does so in five specific ways in Mark 15, 42 through 47, that particularly confronts doubts of logic. So we're going to focus in on doubts of logic here at first. The first specific way that Mark confronts doubts of logic is that he gives us a specific day. Everyone say a specific day. A specific day. day. And so we go to Mark uh, 15, starting in verse 42. It says this, and when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. All right, let's pause here. Day of preparation, Mark explains what the day of preparation is. It's the day before the Sabbath. We know on the Sabbath you could do no what? You could do no work, all right? And so Jesus is hung on a cross on the day of preparation. We know from previous verses that he died at the ninth hour, which uh, the equivalent for us would be around 3 p.m. And the Sabbath did not begin at like 12 a.m. like a new day begins for us. It, it began, began at sundown on that same day, okay? So if Jesus died at 3 p.m., They could do no work on the Sabbath. And also, according to Jewish custom, they had to bury a dead body within 24 hours of its passing. That didn't leave much time for Jesus to be buried. You see what I'm saying? And so we have a specific day, very, very specific day. We understand the urgency surrounding it. And then next, after the specific day, we are given now a specific person. Everyone say a specific person. Okay, so let's go back. Uh, We're going to pick up in verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Uh, I'll pause right there. So Joseph of Arimathea. Notice that Mark does not say, hey, some random guy asked for the body of Jesus and took him and buried him, right? He says, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, this was no average Joe. See what I did there? Okay, okay, come on. I'm a dad now. Got a one-year-old son, dad jokes. They're just like coming out of me naturally now. (laughs) This was the Joseph that was from Arimathea, very specific. He further specifies which Joseph he's talking about when he says that he was a respected member of the council. Okay, so what, what council are we talking about here? The council referred to here is the Sanhedrin. This is the very council that put Jesus on the cross. All right, pause, Jake. Hold up, you mean to tell me the guy that buried Jesus was on the council that desired him to be killed? Yes, but Joseph was different from the rest of the council. You see, in Matthew 27, 57, we're told that Joseph was a rich man from Arimathea and that he was also actually a disciple of Jesus himself. So he was rich. This is important. We're going to come back to that in a second. But he was also a disciple of Jesus. He put his faith in Jesus as Lord. Luke 23, verses 50 through 51 kind of says the same thing about Joseph, but then in verse 51, it says that he did not consent to their decision and action, talking about the council. So we know that Joseph was different from the rest of the members of the Sanhedrin, even though he was a member. So we've got Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, a disciple of Jesus. This is a very specific person, you guys. For us, we read this, and 
naturally, we just kind of overlook the details. I'm like, where's Arimathea? I don't really care. Joseph, very common name. Uh, just kind of keep moving. But for the original audience, they would have read this with the ability to go to Arimathea, knowing that Joseph was a rich man. Maybe they would have went to the local country club in Arimathea. Hey, where's Joseph? Oh, he's teeing off on hole nine, nine right now. Uh, they would have been able to go track down people who knew him or find him personally and ask him to verify these things. They could have even talked to members of the Sanhedrin if they were feeling bold enough and asked them about Joseph of Arimathea, right? And, and, and another thing about Joseph is that he had a specific purpose. Everyone say a specific purpose. So Joseph had a specific purpose. What was that purpose? He was looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking for the kingdom of God. As mentioned earlier, right, we know that he's a disciple, meaning that he felt if he was looking for the kingdom of God, he was a disciple of Jesus. It meant that Joseph believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that he was the king of this kingdom. So in in the first few verses, we see from Mark a specific day and a specific person with a specific purpose. So we're going to keep on reading now. In verse 44, it says, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. So now we see a specific question. Everyone say a specific question. Okay, so Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus died, so he goes to ask and verify, is he actually dead? So why was Pilate surprised? Well, last week, Pastor Mike let us know that the cross was a tool of torture. In fact, it would not be uncommon for people to hang on the cross for two to three days before dying. The cross was intentionally designed to prolong suffering for as long as possible, so people could be fighting for their life up there, just trying to stay alive. So for Jesus to have died so quickly was abnormal, and it was interesting. But it supports the claim that Jesus was not holding on to his life, but that he willingly gave his life. And so here we see very clearly, like, This one question from Pilate, the doubt in in Pilate's mind, points us to Jesus actually being who he said that he was. And so we keep on reading in verse 45 through 47, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This part right here, laid him in a tomb, had been cut out of the rock. We need to know is that any tomb that was cut out of a rock was expensive. And we know that Joseph was a rich man, so we know that he could afford that. And this actually fulfills a specific prophecy. Everyone say a specific prophecy. So hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth, before his resurrection, Isaiah, the prophet, prophesied in Isaiah 53, an amazing, amazing prophecy that we saw Pastor David a few weeks ago uh, show how Jesus fulfilled it, like to the T, perfectly. So we're just going to focus in on verse 9 for our purposes today. Isaiah 53, 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a what? A rich man in his death. Joseph of Arimathea was this rich man. And so we see very, very clearly that Mark is trying to show the historical reliability of the resurrection of Jesus, but also the fact that he's fulfilling the word of God. 
So the bottom line is this, the resurrection of Jesus is rooted in reality. It's rooted in reality. Mark's account is filled with real people, real places, and real events. And we've seen now in Mark 15, 42 through 47, Mark confronting doubts of logic by giving us five specific uh, things that we can look into. But now as we continue into Mark 16, 1 through 8, we see particularly how Mark addresses doubts of fear. So Mark 16, I won't read all this because we read it earlier, uh, but notice we've got Mary Magdalene, we've got Mary the mother of James, it's the same Mary as the mother of Joseph that we just saw, and then we've got Salome, okay, so we've got female disciples here, and they're bringing spices to go and anoint Jesus' corpse, if you look at their question here, it says, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? This points out that they were not expecting a resurrection, right? They're expecting to go and see Jesus' dead body and to care for his dead body. And as we kind of continue on, they, they looked up, they saw the stone was rolled back, and then they walk in and they see uh, a young man in a white robe, so uh, a member of a 90s boy band, uh, and they were alarmed, and no, this is an angel. I'm just kidding. Uh, that was confusing, sorry. Uh, and he said to them, don't be alarmed. You see, Jesus of Nazareth, who's crucified, he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they hit him. Boom. First met, um, uh, mention of the gospel right here, right before our eyes. Amazing. He's alive. He's not here. Go see the place where they laid him. Next the angel commissions them to go and tell the rest of the disciples and Peter that he's uh, going before you to Galilee, right? But look at their response. Look at these female disciples' response. They fled, trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone. Why? For they were afraid. So the first reaction to the gospel, the good news that Jesus rose from the dead, was not overwhelming joy, it was shock, astonishment, fear. This news was so shocking to the women that they initially couldn't do what the angel told them to do. It's totally understandable though, right? I mean, days before, they saw Jesus right before their eyes brutally killed. They then saw him taken off of the cross, given to Joseph of Arimathea. They then followed Joseph of Arimathea and saw his body buried. They then had a whole Sabbath day to let that reality sink into their minds before they could come to the tomb. So of course they were shocked. We all would be shocked. Also, just to kind of point out something else here in this passage, is there like a noticeable absence of a certain group of people? Yeah, we're, who? The men. We're, we're the original disciples. Like where, they're nowhere to be found here, the end of Mark's gospel. Well, in John 20, verse 19, we see where they are. On the evening of the day, the first day of the week, okay? So this is the same day that the women went to the tomb to care for Jesus' corpse and found that he was not there. It says they were, the doors were locked where the disciples were. Why? For fear of the Jews. So we see the disciples hiding because they were afraid. They had just seen the one they thought Messiah was killed. They're probably thinking, did I just waste three years of my life? Like, have I been living a lie? If they did this to Jesus, what will they do to me? 
Surely they had doubts of fear swirling around in their heads, so they hid. Doubt of the disciples, though, was especially curious. It's curious because Jesus had foretold his death and resurrection directly to the disciples, not once, not twice, but three times, previously in the Gospel of Mark. The first place we see it is in Mark 8. It says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, what? Rise again. Okay, so that's pretty clear. Later on in Mark 9, he says the same thing, but then we see an interesting response from the disciples in Mark 9, 32, but they did not understand the saying, and they were what? Afraid to ask him. So they heard Jesus say it a second time, but they didn't get it. It wasn't quite computing in their head. But Jesus obviously spoke a lot of time in parables and metaphors, so they're probably like, I don't know if he's being serious or what that means, but they were afraid to ask him. And so they just kind of sat in their doubt, hunkered down in their doubt. And then one more time, Jesus tells them that he's going to die and rise on the third day in Mark 10. Jesus told them three times, you would have thought on that third day, at least one of them would have been like, hey, you guys remember Jesus? He like said something to us like multiple times. But parents, y'all know, like you tell kids multiple times and we forget, right? It's the same thing with the disciples. They didn't go looking for him because they were afraid and they were hiding in their fear. This reveals an important truth that we must confront. Doubts of fear lead us to hide. Doubts of fear lead us to hide. Some of us here may be struggling with particular doubts of fear. So I just want to name a few. Maybe you're struggling this morning with the fear of man. You're afraid of what other people might think or say to you. It can lead us to doubt what God says about us. And it can cause us to hide from community out of fear of whether or not people will love, appreciate, or accept us. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been struggling with the fear of the future, or fear of the unknown. You've got some rising high school seniors in the room and you're wondering what's the future hold for you. It can lead us to doubt that God is actually sovereign and actually has a plan for your life. And it can cause us to hide from our calling. Maybe some of you have the fear of being wrong swirling around in your heart. And that can lead us to doubt what we know to be true about God and cause us to hide from sharing the gospel with our lost friends, family members, or neighbors. Or maybe you're going through a rough time right now, circumstantially. And you've got some fears due to your circumstances. And those fears due to your circumstances are causing you to doubt if God actually cares about your life. And it can even cause you to hide from God himself. This is not a new thing. Hiding whenever we doubt due to our fear. This is a human thing. In fact, we see this in Genesis with Adam and Eve. They sin against God. They're afraid of his response. So what do they do? They hide. You know, and our doubts can lead us to live lives that do not correspond with reality. This is important. Lean in on this part. In our hiding we can be missing out on the power of the resurrection in our own lives because we refuse to confront our doubt and live into the reality of the resurrection. In other words, our doubts can lead us to be living a lie. 
Eventually, Mary Magdalene and the other female disciples encountered the risen Jesus, and that gave them the courage to then go and to be the first messengers of the gospel. But this was the male disciples' response in Luke 24, 11. It says, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So they heard from these women who they knew, they trusted, they knew they were disciples of Jesus. They heard from eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, and they still did not believe. And these were the men who followed Jesus around for three and a half years. What did it take to convince the disciples? Jesus had to show up himself. Luke 24, 36 through 40. They were talking about these things, and Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Now pause. They just think it's hilarious that Jesus popped into a room and said, Peace to you, knowing it was going to terrify them. I think that he has a sense of humor, obviously. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? I just want to pause right here and say that I believe the Holy Spirit is asking this same question to many of us in the room today. Like the disciples, maybe you've seen God do incredible things in your life. You've seen God do maybe incredible things around you or in other people's lives. But your present circumstances, your present doubts, your present fears are causing you to disbelieve a little bit. Jesus' question to the disciples here, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts, confronts their doubt directly and challenges them to remember his faithfulness and his promises. And this question that he's asking to them, I believe he's asking to us, and I believe he's trying to do the same thing. He's trying to help us remember and recall to mind who he is, who he has been, And not to get so wrapped up sometimes as easy as it can be in our present challenges and circumstances. Next, he says this in verse 39. See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So right here, we see three really, really powerful truths. First thing that Jesus did is he met them in their doubt. He met the disciples in their doubt, right? He popped into a room, showed up himself because they were not believing after people had told them. Second thing, he invited the disciples to confront their doubt. How did he invite them to confront their doubt? What does he say? See my hands, touch me, see. He's saying, hey, I know you're doubting still, but like see for yourself. Touch me and see that I'm real, I'm alive, And lastly, he liberated the disciples from their doubt. Notice this in in Luke 24 down to verse 45. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. We'll keep on going down. You are witnesses of these things. Like you're seeing it right in front of you. You're experiencing it right now. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Here we see Jesus liberating the disciples from their doubt. So he shows up in the midst of their doubt, he invites them to confront their doubt, and then he liberates them from their doubt. And 
I'm here to tell you that he's still doing the same thing today. Jesus meets us in the midst of our doubt. Jesus invites us to confront our doubt. And Jesus liberates us from our doubt. You might be wondering, how is that possible? How does he do this today? Well, I have two particular applications. One application has to be done in private. The other application has to be done in community. And you can't just do half of these. They got to be done all together when it comes to confronting our doubts and experiencing liberation from them. So first, application in private. First one is immerse. Everyone say immerse. And then investigate. Immerse and investigate. So, so what do I mean by that? Well, first things first, we have to immerse ourselves in the word of God. The only way that you can confront your doubts is by opening up God's word and seeing where your doubts, where your beliefs are rubbing against God's word. And so you immerse yourself in the word of God. I would even encourage you to, to get a study Bible if you don't know what a study Bible is, these are larger Bibles that have notes at the bottom of each page. And so like many times I'll be reading a verse and I have no idea what that means. And I'll look down and luckily there's a note there and it helps bring clarity to it. I'll encourage you to, to get one. Uh, particularly the English Standard Version study Bible is one I use that I love. It's a great way for you to really immerse yourself in the word of God and like actually see if your doubts are true or if they're proven wrong. And then next to investigate. So as you open up the word of God, to not just read it and be like, okay, that's cool, but to really investigate. The reason I have this here is because, y'all, if the resurrection is real, it is worth us believing, right? Like just point blank period, you don't have to be a follower of Jesus in the room to, to agree to that, right? If Jesus rose from the dead, then we should believe that. But we have to investigate that. There's so much on the line here. We've got to immerse ourselves in God's word and investigate in private. I don't even encourage you. Use YouTube as a resource. We can help you, point you to good, good people to, to listen to uh, as a staff. And then application in community. So you can't just do in private. You have to also apply this in, in community. Interact. Everyone say interact. And then inquire. Okay, so interact. You've got to get around other people who actually believe in Jesus Christ not just for the encouragement that it can provide, which absolutely it can, but also just like if you're doubting, it's like, hey, why do you believe what you believe? Get around people and to see how they live, how the faith fleshes out in reality for, for people. And then inquire, ask questions. In addition to us as a pastoral staff who would love to answer any questions you have about the Bible or just life circumstances that you're facing, we have a ton of brilliant, wise followers of Jesus here and our church family that we would love to get you connected to. Maybe you need to jump into a church group and get into a community, and this is a safe space where you can inquire and ask honest questions about and doubts that you're wrestling with. But most importantly, when it comes to inquiring, I would encourage you to ask God directly in prayer about your doubts. So many times in Scripture, we see the people of God doubting, but in the midst of their doubt, they bring their doubt to God. But the Psalms is riddled with this, right? Like people who are like, God, I don't believe if you are who you say that you are because of my circumstances. But Lord, I'm bringing this to you and help me to remember and to see your faithfulness. It's honest humanity that we're seeing in the Psalms. I would encourage you to do the same. The point is this, if you're unwilling to confront your doubt, then your doubt is just going to 
kind of exists and you're never going to get to a point of clarity, right? We have to be willing to confront our doubts. And I believe when we do that, we will see that the entirety of Scripture is rooted in reality just as we've seen here for the resurrection. But not just that the resurrection is only rooted in, in reality, the resurrection also transforms our reality. The resurrection transforms our reality. When Jesus showed up, the disciples went from hiding to heralding. They went from locked in a room for fear of the Jews and not believing anybody's testimony to, okay, I'm gonna listen. He said power is gonna be sent from on high. That was the promise of the Holy Spirit. We see that in Acts chapter two. The Holy Spirit comes and fills the disciples and empowers them to do the, the thing that God called them to do, which is the Great Commission. And then we see them from, they go from hiding to heralding and to being so bold in their faith, so full of belief that they were willing to die for their faith. Many disciples, many followers of Jesus in the first century, martyrs of the Christian faith, are noted as singing to their death because they were full of belief. But we can't get there if we're unwilling to confront our doubts. The resurrection of Jesus has the power to transform our reality. But we have to confront the doubt. Just really quickly here as we get ready to close, I want to share a little bit of my personal testimony when it comes to doubting and the faith and the resurrection of Jesus. I grew up in church. I enjoyed growing up in church. I can remember, uh, though, from a young age, struggling with doubt, a very young age. I remember being seven years old, hearing a gospel message at our church and thinking to myself, I want to believe that, but how can God be real? I was seven, same age as some of you kids in here today. So doubt just starts really young, right? It can start really young. By God's grace, I made a decision to follow him at eight years old, and I, I believe that to be a real decision, but my battle with doubt did not start if any, or stop. If anything, it ramped up. When I became a teenager, fear began to enter my life, particularly the fear of man. I worried about what other people thought of me. I lived for the approval of other people in many ways, changed my lifestyle to please people. But at church, I was actually growing in leadership opportunities as a teenager. I had a great relationship with my youth pastor. He was giving me these opportunities to use the gifts that God had given me. Uh, I was known as an exemplary young person in the church. Had some elderly people at the church tell me that. You're an exemplary young person. I had to look up that word after they told me that. What's exemplary? Uh, but in private, I was struggling. I was struggling with deep sin, and I was struggling with deep doubt. And guess what? No one knew about it. I hid the true condition of my heart from everybody. No one knew I was struggling. But then one day when I was 17, everything changed. We went to visit my older sister. She was living in Birmingham, her and her husband, at Birmingham, Alabama. And we went and visited them in their church on Easter weekend. And I remember walking into their church, looking dressed to the nines, good on the outside, but on the inside, honestly, I was feeling numb. At this point, I had been sinning so much, struggling with doubt so much that I like stopped feeling bad and I just started feeling nothing. It was not a great place to be, but as I walked in the church that day, I knew it was Easter. They're going to preach on what? The resurrection. And honestly, I tuned out the message because I'm like, I've grown up in church. I know what he's going to preach on. I don't need to listen to this message. But in the response worship song, I had a moment that I cannot 
really explain logically to you, uh, but I'm going to explain what happened. I stood up, and as I stood up, what felt like the weight of a grand piano fell on my shoulders and was lifted off me in an instant. Immediately, tears start welling up in my eyes. Now I'm 17, 17 17-year-olds in the room. Guys, we're not trying to cry, right? Especially now in public, in front of our parents at church. No. I'm like, it's like, I, I don't know what's happening. And I just felt my arms like weightlessly lift to the ceiling in praise. And I, a thought popped in my head that was not from myself. This thought said to me, it's okay, Jake. I'm here now. Jesus met me in the midst of my doubt that day. I did not go into that day hoping or praying that he would. Maybe he heard the pain, saw the pain in my heart, and maybe heard the thoughts that I did in the direction of God, right? Maybe he heard my mom's prayers for me. So if you're a praying mom or dad here, don't, don't stop. But he met me in the midst of my doubt that day. I remember leaving the room, walking outside. It was raining outside. I'm 17 years old. This is how I knew something was different. It's raining outside, and I said, first thought I had was, God is providing for his creation. I get in the car. I had joy that I could not wipe off my face. I didn't listen to a word the preacher preached that day. How is that possible? I don't even know what song we were standing up to sing. How is that possible? It's the same thing with the disciples here. Jesus just showed up in my life. He, he met me in the midst of my doubt. He led me to confront my doubt. And then he liberated me from my doubt. That's not to say that I never doubted again. Like I continued to doubt, continued to struggle with doubt. My life definitely hasn't been perfect. But I stand before you today here because the resurrection is a reality for me. It has to be. By the way, the preacher that day was David Platt. (laughs) Didn't listen to anything he said. I'm sure the sermon was good. Uh, But Jesus is the one who met me that day. And though I don't have pictures or a video of what happened on that Sunday like I did in my trick shot, the evidence is standing before you behind this pulpit as I preach on the resurrection. So I just want to close you by asking this question one more time. Is the resurrection real to you? Is it real to you? Why don't we do this? Everyone bow your heads, close your eyes. Let's take a moment and consider this question. Maybe you're in the room. This morning, you've never made a decision when it comes to Jesus. And this message, maybe you've felt something stirring up in your heart about this question. Maybe today's the day where you make a life-altering, eternity-shifting decision to put your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. You can do that right here, right now in these moments. And maybe some of you here are wrestling with fear, doubts of fear. You're a follower of Jesus, but you're just having a hard time living into the reality of the resurrection. Right here, right now, it's a moment for Jesus to meet you where you are. Let's just take a moment.
Lord Jesus, how we come to you right now and we ask, Lord, we ask you to reveal yourself to us. Lord, I know that you can because you've done it in my life. 17, unsolicited, (laughs) out of nowhere. But you've done it many times in my life since then. And I believe that you can do it right here, right now. Just even since, maybe there was somebody, a young person here that didn't listen to a word I said. (laughs) Like I didn't listen to anything Pastor David said that day. But you see them and you love them. You want to meet them where they are in this response time. God, I pray that you would work in that young person's life. I pray that you would work in the older person's life that is just walking through real difficulty right now. Maybe some pain, physical pain, emotional, relational pain. Lord, the pain might be real, but so is your resurrection. And God, we praise you that the resurrection is not just something we get to look forward to in eternity, but we can experience the power of in the here and now. And I pray, Lord, as we respond in worship and in communion, that we would experience the power of your resurrection washing over us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.